Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Lisa Ramsden. She's a senior oceans campaigner at Greenpeace USA, an NGO focused on tackling the biggest climate change issues we face today. We use plastic in quite literally every facet of our lives, and that is incredibly disconcerting. There's so many downstream effects of plastic exposure and consumption, and people need to be more aware of it. Fortunately, Lisa has been working for over 15 years to fight oil and gas and big plastic, and is here to spread the word. Expect to learn just how bad the plastic epidemic has gotten and how much bigger it's projected to become, how much plastic we consume in any given week, why your athleisure wardrobe might not be so good for you, how we may find our way out of this mess, and much more. But before we get started, you may be watching or listening, but not subscribed. And not only does that mean you might miss future episodes, but it makes me kind of sad. So hit the red subscribe button below if you're watching on YouTube, or hit the plus follow button on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to not miss the next episode. It supports the show, and I really appreciate it, and I thank you. But now, ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Ramsden. So we're here to talk all things plastics, uh, but before we get into that, uh, if you just want to give maybe a little bit of context about your background, the work that you do at Greenpeace, how you got there, just to kind of set the table for the conversation. Sure. Um, So I've been an environmentalist all my life, probably even before I understood what that word meant. I studied environmental science in college on the coast of North Carolina And while I was there, I kind of uh, got involved with Greenpeace and started doing some activism on my campus. And once I graduated, I knew that that was what I was meant to do. So I got lucky enough to get super involved with Greenpeace. Um, I did some fellowships. I did some volunteering for a while and um, have been kind of working with them on and off ever since. Um, I've held a variety of roles within the organization over the past 15 years, but I've been working primarily on our plastics campaign for about five years. So I'm currently a senior plastics campaigner um, and the role sits on our oceans team because this started off as an oceans issue and most people kind of come into the plastics work because they hear about all the plastic in the oceans. Um, But now we know that this issue is so much bigger than just our oceans. Um, so it's, it's really evolved from there. Yeah. Maybe started out in the oceans, but has certainly, uh, spread as we will cover. I'm sure. Um, in an email that I sent you before this conversation, I asked you if there's anything that you would like to start off with any stories or anything. And you had mentioned that in 2018, you had sailed through the great Pacific garbage patch. So I guess to start, what is the great Pacific garbage patch for people who are not aware And then could you maybe talk a little bit about what you were doing there, the reasons why you went, how that impacted you both personally and professionally, um, all that that good stuff. Sure. So again, most people come at the plastics issue because they've heard of things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, And what it is, is um, they're just a bunch of ocean currents in the North Atlantic that kind of send a lot of things to the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and that includes plastic. So this is an area that has a really high concentration of plastic pollution. It's not it's not mounds of plastic floating on top of the ocean. It's not islands of floating garbage. That's kind of how the media has portrayed it a bit, but it's more so a plastic soup. 
Um, once plastic is in the ocean, it's getting broken apart because it's exposed to the salt water, to UV rays. So it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces and eventually into just tiny little microplastics. Um, so while we were going through the uh, Great Pacific Garbage Patch on a Greenpeace ship, by the way, I should mention that um, Greenpeace has a couple of ships that travel around the world working on different environmental campaigns. And I've been very lucky and I've been on them up and down the east coasts of the U.S. I was in the Gulf of Mexico on one after the BP oil spill. I've been up to the Alaskan Arctic and I've also been through the Great Pacific Garbage Patch Um so we sailed from Mexico to Hawaii and spent about 20 days collecting data along the way about um, the garbage patch and documenting kind of some of the pollution that we were seeing. So every day we would put this little net into the water alongside the ship and just drag it along the surface of the water to collect the microplastics there. And we collected thousands and thousands of microplastics and we were only dragging this tiny little net on the surface of the water for 30 minutes at a time. Um, and as we got closer and closer to the Great Pacific garbage patch, the number of microplastics that we were collecting increased a lot. Um, we were also seeing a lot of floating plastic trash. Um, a lot of it is discarded fishing gear. So you see nets, you see different types of cages and traps and things like that. Um, but one, one day in the middle of the Pacific ocean, I saw a Coca-Cola bottle. So there are things like that floating out there too. The reason why you don't see more plastic, um, in this big gyre is that it's breaking apart into smaller pieces and also it's sinking to the bottom of the ocean. So we are essentially just seeing the tip of the iceberg in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch because a lot of the plastic that's in the ocean has probably sunk at this point or is just continuing to break down into smaller and smaller pieces that are hard to see. So we were really just um, there to gather information. We were also taking water samples. We partnered with a university in California um, who wanted to look at microfibers in the ocean. So that's um, things, you know, if you're wearing a, a fleece that's made out of polyester, every time you wash that, there are different microfibers that are getting then washed out into our water supply. Um, so they were collecting microfibers. Um, so we were sending that information back to them. Um, and then we were just documenting any of the like wildlife that we would see impacted by it um, and things like that. Wow. I, I would never have guessed that something like that would even be possible to like washing your clothes and having that, that outpouring of water, collecting micro plastic, like fibers. That's, that's insane. Um, so I guess it's just a few follow-up questions on that. And this maybe will go nowhere. I'm not sure. Uh, but is the, the concentration of the plastics due to those currents, is that necessarily a positive thing or a negative thing? Um, I mean, obviously the situation is very negative, but is it better to have this all spread out or to have it actually concentrated? Does that make the problem possibly easier to solve? Hmm. It depends on how you're looking at solving the problem. If you're looking at trying to clean up the ocean, maybe there's a slight positive there um, because there are some groups who are trying to do that. But Greenpeace looks at the solution a little bit differently. We obviously we would love to clean up the oceans. That would be amazing, but it's a very difficult task, especially since a lot of that plastic is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. We see the solution as actually stopping production of really unnecessary single-use plastics. Um, and until we stop flooding our oceans and our earth with these single-use plastics, there it kind of feels like a fool's errand to try and clean it up. 
Mm. And when you had mentioned that it is a bit of a soup, I, I think I made like a very sour face. That's just, that's such a disgusting uh, analogy. Have, have there been any adaptations for marine life in that area? Are they, are they avoiding this area? Are they still in the ocean as they would be normally? I'm assuming it might be the latter because of just the, the, the scale. And maybe you could mention what the scale of the patch has been like. Yeah. So, um, some people have reported that the size of the, the patch is like the size of Texas. So it's a pretty large area. Um, and it's out in the deep, deep ocean. So we, we didn't see a ton of wildlife when we were out there because it's so far from land. Um, but there have been lots of reports of, um, you know, different ocean species, marine species attaching themselves to plastic and then traveling around the world with the plastic, um, it's kind of not a negative or a positive unless it's an invasive species that is like attaching itself to plastic and then drifting someplace that it's maybe not supposed to be. Um, but you know, it's very easy for birds and fish to mistake plastic for food and ingest it. And that's why we wind up with all those really sad photos of birds laying on beaches with stomachs full of plastic. Um, so it's, it's not, not great for wildlife. One more question about your experience, and then we can jump into a little bit more of the U.S. logistics. So how did seeing this in person actually resonate with you and make you feel? Was it something that you could like actually see it, or was it more so just the data collection was just so striking? And what effect did that have on you? I mean, yeah, we could definitely see it. Um, we often just had people um, kind of... Uh, sitting on the deck of the ship as observers to record the amount of plastic that they were seeing just with their naked eye looking out into the water. And when we were in the patch, we were seeing plastic constantly. But again, it wasn't like a big floating island. It wasn't something that you can like really easily capture um, like on film to show like, this is what we're looking at. But you would just see like, there's that piece of plastic and that piece of plastic. And we were thousands of miles away from where people are living and where any of this plastic could have come from. So that really was shocking and upsetting. Um, and I mentioned on that transit, we went from Mexico to Hawaii. And while we were in Hawaii, we were invited to ho help a local group um, go clean up a beach on Koholabe, which is an uninhabited island. Um, and it's um, an important place for some of the, the indigenous folks who live there. And this beach on an uninhabited island was covered in plastic. I think we removed somewhere between two and four tons of plastic and the beach was still covered. Um, so it just goes to show that, you know, no, no place on earth is untouched by plastics at this point. And that's really sad. Yeah. I would imagine seeing that would be so striking. Like you, you hear about it, you hear about how, how bad it is in certain areas, but seeing it firsthand, I, I would imagine would be just so, such a massive re revelation. So let's, let's talk about how, how that has come to be. So let's talk about the, the recycling system in the U S today, specifically for plastics. I don't know how much this varies based on the city, the County, et cetera, the state. Uh, but if you just want to kind of maybe walk me through the, the steps, like what happens from when I put a piece of plastic in a recycling bin to when it actually ends up in a upcycling facility or worst case in the patch. Sure. So I'll take us back to kind of the very beginning real quick. Um, plastics recycling was kind of created by the consumer goods companies who are packaging a lot of their products in plastic and by the plastics companies. They 
knew that people would eventually be upset by all of this plastic turning up in their homes and in their communities. So they really pushed the idea of recycling and they marketed recycling so well to us. Um, You know, I'm a kid of the 80s and 90s, and we were all told that like recycling was the number one thing that you could do to save the planet. And we all bought into it and thought that we were really doing our part by recycling. And that's often the case with other materials. So I want to say it's definitely great to keep keep recycling, especially when it's metals and glass and paper and cardboard and things like that. That recycling works. So what we're talking about is just plastics recycling. Um, And Greenpeace released a report last fall that um, exposed that only 5% of plastic in the U.S. was recycled in 2021. So that's 5% of all of the plastic that we as a country used in 2021 was recycled. And that's a shocking number. Um, And another shocking number to throw at you real quick is that only 9% of the plastic that has ever been created worldwide has ever been recycled. Oh my God. It's a lot of plastic that is not getting recycled. Yeah. Um, And most people aren't aware of these numbers. Um, and it's really, it's complicated, you know, how we got here is sort of a complicated story, but it comes down to a couple of key things. And that is, it's really difficult to collect plastic because if you think of all the plastic that all of us bring into our homes and use every day and then try to recycle, it's, it's quite an ordeal to collect all of that plastic. It's really difficult to sort because there's so many different types and colors and shapes and sizes of plastic. And then in the end, there's not much of a market for it. Um, It's not super economical to recycle plastic because it has to be downcycled. That was another another thing. Um, You can't really take a plastic bottle and turn it immediately back into another plastic bottle. You might be able to do that a couple of times, but eventually it needs to be downcycled. So that's when it gets turned into carpet. It's when it gets turned into a park bench or a fleece. but we are often not turning these materials into the same thing that they were before. So all of that makes plastic recycling really complicated. (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned how low the yields are, and I'm assuming that's just because it's, again, as you mentioned, it's just so hard to do that. So why, why is this the case? Is this just a product of the material itself? Is this a product of cutting some corners and manufacturing, making a cheaper product? Um, why, why haven't we gotten better at this process? I think we haven't gotten better at this process because there isn't the funding for it. Um, there's not an incentive to do it. Um, and yeah, to kind of dive a little bit deeper into it, there are, we're all pretty familiar that there are like six or seven different types of plastic. You know, if you look at your bottle or your cup, you'll see the little number and the chasing arrows on the bottom of it. Um, And that is the type of plastic that it is. So plastics number one and two are the most recyclable in the U.S. Um, Plastics number one, which are like plastic bottles, those have a recycling rate of about 30% in the U.S. So not bad, comparatively speaking, but still not great. Um, And plastics number two have a recycling rate of about uh, 20%. And those are normally like laundry jugs, different jugs and things like that. Um, A lot of places in the U.S., only accept one and two right now because they're the most recyclable. There is a market for some of those recycled materials. 
a lot of places in the U.S. are no longer accepting three through seven because there aren't buyers for it. Um, number five, which is a pretty common plastic, that's what like yogurt tubs are made of. Um, a lot of common like uh, food type plastics um, are number five, and those are rarely being recycled. We released another report a few years ago that said that those are being recycled at about four or five percent across the country, and a lot of times these plastics are going to recycling centers and then not getting recycled. They're sitting in bales in warehouses um, untouched because there aren't buyers for them or they're getting just sent to landfills. Um, and sometimes they're getting sent to incinerators and then they're being burned, which causes a lot of other problems. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a complicated beast. <laughs> so I'm picturing my own recycling bin right now. I have, I'm sure a lot of type one type twos, but that might also range to those yogurt containers. I'm a big Greek yogurt person, which is maybe I should not admit that. And maybe that's a bad thing <laughs> anyways. So I, I take that, I throw that out into my, uh, buildings recycling bin that gets picked up. It gets taken to a facility from there. What is the sorting process like? I'm assuming that because there is such an incentive to just focus on the one and twos, it's likely going to be um, skewed towards, oh boy, false positives or false negatives. (laughs) (laughs) I'm assuming that a lot of one and twos will get pushed out into the scraps bin and not the actual upcycling process just because of efficiency, of time constraints, focusing on the you know 80-20 rule of let's just try to get as much one and twos as possible and not really regard the three and higher numbers. Um, is there any nuances there? Can you kind of speak on that process? I'm, I'm sure, again, it depends on what facility it is, but in general, there's anything to be said. Yeah, it definitely depends on the facility. And there are also some facilities that rely on like infrared technology to kind of scan the different types of plastic um, to help with the sorting process. Um, A side note sort of related to that is that last year, Coca-Cola stopped making Sprite in green bottles and they changed their Sprite bottles to clear bottles instead. And that was because they were getting feedback from these recycling companies that the green wasn't scanning properly through those infrared machines. So by switching to clear bottles, they were trying to make their product more recyclable. Obviously, it's a wasn't really helping things all that much, but maybe making it a little bit better for some recycling facilities. Um, So yeah, there's some technology involved. There are um, people who actually go through the waste and sort it. And as you can imagine, that's a super labor intensive practice Um, or yeah. And also um, a lot of people put things in recycling bins that shouldn't be there. Um, That could be just a different type of plastic that's not recyclable. Um, different films and flimsy plastics are really problematic for recycling um, facilities because they can jam up the machines. So if you're putting like grocery store plastic bags in your recycling bin, that's often uh, uh, not great for recycling centers. Um, And just to say that flexible plastics like plastic bags and films and wraps are not recyclable at all um, at this point. So that gets into the, into the facility. Let's assume that they are able to extract, as you said, probably 30% of the type ones, 20% of the type twos, et cetera. The rest gets pushed into a, a scrap bin. What happens to each of those piles? The pile that's meant to be upcycled and actually recycled, and then the pile that is just sitting. Uh, if you can kind of walk me through those two paths as well. Yeah. 
Um, again, it depends on the facility, but the, the ones that aren't going to get recycled or used, they might be sent to a landfill or an incinerator. Um, and are those, those are, are those on like us soil or are those kind of shipped out to different areas? Yeah. Great question. So up until 2019, the U S was exporting a ton of its plastic waste, um, to China specifically, um, and to other, um, other countries, but China got most of our waste, but in 2019, they actually said that they weren't going to take our, our trash anymore. Um, so n- for the most part, the U.S. has to deal with our plastic trash um, in the country because other countries have said that they don't want to take it anymore. Why was that the case? I'm assuming it's just a matter of economics. Countries were willing to um, accept payment to take on the U.S.'s trash and Therefore, they kind of inherited that problem, and that was likely to be a bit of a nearsighted kind of agreement. Uh, and now we're doing it on our own land, which, as you mentioned, landfills, incinerators, kind of pernicious um, ways of handling this this trash. Yeah, and I think we were shipping a lot of our waste to other countries under the guise of. Uh, them recycling it, but a lot of that was not getting recycled either because, again, there's not much of a market for this recycled plastic. Um, yeah. And also just to say, um, plastics are really toxic. There's a lot of bad stuff in plastics. So when we burn it, um, we are then turning that into air pollution. So communities who live next to these incinerators are um, facing the brunt of that uh that toxic air and those toxic chemicals and facing pretty negative health impacts because of it. Um, or the other alternative is to have that plastic sit in the landfill where it will remain for a couple of centuries before it decomposes. <laughs> yeah. And I'm assuming there's probably issues with that leaching into the water table and all that kind of stuff. How, how well do we understand this problem and the implications around letting plastic sit in a landfill versus burning it? Have there been many studies? I mean, I'm assuming because we've only just started to handle this on our own land, that that could cause us to be a bit ignorant about the effects of this. Can you speak on that? Sure. I think that we are getting better um, about understanding like the full life cycle of plastic and how problematic it is at every stage of its life cycle. Um, 99% of plastics are made from fossil fuels. So they are made from oil and fracked gas, and then it has to be shipped to a refinery. And then the, the fossil fuel is refined and turned into the building blocks to make whatever type of plastic it is. And then it's molded and shaped and all these additives are forced into it and it's turned into a bottle or a tub or a cup. Um, and then it gets used in whatever, up, like wherever it needs to be used. And then it is recycled or discarded. And every stage of this life cycle has some implications. Um, it's, it's polluting at every stage of its life cycle. And there are people who live near these extraction sites for the fossil fuel industry. There are people who live near these petrochemical facilities where um, the plastic or the, the gas or the oil is being refined. And then there are people who live near these landfills and incinerators. And it's not good. It's not good for human health. It's not good for our oceans. It's not good for wildlife. Um, Plastics are really problematic through and through. 
I'm curious about how this compares to other forms of climate change causing avenues. I, that was pretty clunky, but I've, I've heard of, of, of like tales of some cities or towns that are kind of in the middle of a bunch of different coal plants and you can like kind of run your finger on almost any surface and like just pick up soot, which is just disgusting. So, and maybe this is not a fair comparison, but how, and, and maybe we don't know, but how does plastic incineration or dealing with plastic, as we've just talked about, compare to other things like coal plants in terms of the, the impact on, on the climate? Yeah, it's very significant. I am I'm blanking on the exact percentage right now, but it's something like plastic production is responsible for maybe 8% of climate emissions, like carbon dioxide emissions worldwide. It's don't, it's not quite um, right, but it's somewhere around there. Um, and plastic production is slated to increase. It's uh, slated to triple by 2050. So we are already in a really dire situation for our climate and the amount of carbon dioxide that we have in, in the atmosphere. Um, increasing plastic production is only going to make that worse. Um, there, a lot of the plastic production and the petrochemical facilities in the U.S. Um, exist in like the Gulf Coast of Texas and the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, and these are areas that have already been dealing with so much um, development from the fossil fuel industry. There, there are so many different projects there that are now um, just kind of filling their communities with pollution and toxins. And these communities are trying to fight back. They're trying to fight new um, petrochemical facilities and um, different plants that the fossil fuel and uh, petrochemical companies want to put there, but it's, it's hard. And I've been to some of the areas in Texas where there are lots of refineries and things like that. And you can smell it in the air and you can see playgrounds in the foreground of these terrible plants. And it's really heartbreaking. No one deserves to live next to, next to a petrochemical facility. It's, it's a human rights issue. It's, um, yeah. Um, they are basically saying that these people who live near these facilities are, are disposable, that these are sacrifice zones. And these are often put in low-income communities, um, predominantly black and brown people. And it is, it's an environmental justice issue. It's a racial issue. It's a racial justice issue. Um, and it is, it is why, an yet another reason why we need to kind of stop the amount of plastic that we're producing is because it's harming people's lives as well. What is the, and again, I, I'm pretty obsessed with power laws. So I, I, I want to focus on the like 80% of the problem or sorry, the 20% of the problem that creates 80% of the, the issues here. So with that being said, where is the majority of this, of this plastic coming from? Is it just consumers? Is it certain businesses? Are there industries that are particularly bad that we should focus on? Um, what, what is the biggest bang for the buck if we were to take, uh, if we we're to take on one industry sector, use case, et cetera? Thank you for asking that question. It's a great one. Um, we have the biggest battle with what we call the fast moving consumer goods companies. These are the companies like Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Nestle, Unilever. They're the ones who are packaging foods and beverages to us um, and shipping them all around the world. So they're the ones that we have the biggest issue with because so much of their packaging is 
not necessary. Um, you know, there are different types of plastic that are not single use, they're multi-use and they are making our lives easier. Single use plastics for the most part, not necessary. Um, Coca-Cola up until the seventies was packaging their, their beverages in reusable glass bottles. So we would enjoy the beverage, give it back to the store or wherever we got it from. And that bottle would be cleaned and refilled and resold. Um, this is kind of the model that we need to get back to. Um, it's how the milkman used to deliver milk to us in glass bottles. Um, it might seem a little bit like old timey at this point, but we really feel like we need to go back to systems of refill and reuse because we it's it's just outrageous that we get this bottle, use it for a few minutes and then toss it away. And it exists in the environment for a couple of centuries um, it's it's not worth the convenience. So we are really calling on these corporations to change their ways and to stop producing and using so much single-use plastic. So single-use, by far um, the biggest impactor. I want to also touch back on the the bit that you were they're saying about washing clothes that have, what was the material again, sorry? Um, like polyester, that's what fleeces are made out of. Yeah. Polyester. So how, how big of an impact is that? And I'm just thinking about like wearing these things that are leaching microplastic fibers all over me. That just sounds just disgusting. Are there, how much should we know about this? Cause I feel like I, I hadn't even thought about that, but it seems obvious now in hindsight, how much should we know and be how, how big of a problem is other things that are just laced with plastic. I'm thinking uh, perhaps a container that you may believe is very re recyclable or even something that is just going straight to landfill, but it's laced with like a layer of plastic. Yeah. Textile waste is a huge problem, whether the textiles, the clothes are made out of plastic or, or other materials. But um, in the past couple of decades, we've really seen a lot more of our clothing be made from synthetic fibers. So that's essentially plastic. Um, anything that is polyester, um, a lot of our athletic wear, um, our quick drying clothes, a lot of that is made out of plastic. And every time you wash that garment, <clears throat> excuse me, it's getting rinsed with water that then gets sent back out into the water supply and it is leaching little plastic microfibers along the way. Um, so it is definitely a concern, um, but it's really hard to buy clothes these days that are made from natural fibers, that are made from cotton or linen or wool, because so much of our clothing is made from synthetic fibers now. So definitely a big issue. Um, so folks, we just had a bit of a tech hiccup. We are back. Lisa was just explaining the issue around textiles, around plastic and clothes, these synthetic fibers, things that aren't natural. Uh, Lisa, if you want to, sorry, just continue to where we were. Sure. Um, yeah, I was basically just saying that a lot of the clothes that we wear now, especially athletic wear, um, quick dry things, anything that is like a fleece, um, a lot of that is made of plastics and when you wash those garments in the washer, that water that they're being washed with is then flowing back out into the water supply and it's full of little tiny microfibers. Um, so another, just another issue um, when it comes to plastics and how we're using them in our everyday lives. Um, and it, 
fast fashion is a big issue and there are a lot of uh, things related to that and how it is there. Are, it's just a, a big polluting industry as well. And the fact that a lot of that fast fashion is made from plastic is, is not helping anything. So in terms of scale, we talked that the the single biggest contributor is the single use plastics. You had named the few few brands there. How does the fashion side of things compare to that? Is that number two? If not, what would be kind of number two? And even if there's like a stack rank, if you could kind of offer that. Mm. Um, that is a good question. I am not sure exactly where each of these fall. Um, another big issue, especially in terms of ocean plastic pollution is uh, discarded fishing gear. So that's also pretty high up there on the list. And I'm sure that we can circle back to this later as well, but what, what is, why is this the case? Like, is this lobbyists? Is this, is this just oil and gas is such a huge industry. They're pumping out all these products that are being consumed and used. Is it a matter of a lack of funding? Why, why is this the case? I think kind of all of it combined. Um, the oil and gas companies are looking at plastic production as kind of their lifeline. They know that the energy revolution is upon us and that we are switching to EV cars and we're going to switch to wind and solar because we have to. Um, so they're kind of looking at plastics and petrochemicals as their lifeline. Um, so that is part of it. Also, these fast-moving consumer goods product uh, companies like Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Nestle, um, it's convenient for them to continue making their products the way that they've been making them. Um, it would be inconvenient for them to change their entire operations and systems, um, but that's what we need them to do, or else they're going to cover the planet in plastic. Oh, man. In terms of the recycling system, has that... Has it gotten only better with time? Has there been any major step ups or, or, or step downs? I know that you mentioned the uh, the use of, of, of glass bottles and say Coca-Cola that has now switched to, to more of a single use model. Um, outside of the consumption uh, logistics kind of world in the plastic recycling world, how has that story gone? So an another great question. Um, we've been doing plastics recycling for 40 or so years now, and it really hasn't improved. I mean, that is obvious when I give you that 9% figure, 9% of all plastics ever created have been recycled. We're not getting better at it. Um, companies are getting better at um, saying that we're getting better at it. There are a bunch of companies that are now pushing things called advanced recycling or chemical recycling, um, which sounds like a really fancy magical recycling process. Um, and they're saying that you can, you know, put all of your types of plastics, including flimsy films and um, little ketchup packets and everything like that can get recycled. All it is though, is a fancy term for burning plastics and burning plastics to then create energy. So that's how they are able to label it as advanced or chemical recycling, but it is not some magic fix. Um, I want to touch on the toxicity a bit of recycled plastics because Please, yeah. Greenpeace just released a report a couple of weeks ago um, touching on this, that there are lots of toxins in plastics um, to make them more bendable, um, to make them look certain ways, to have certain textures. 
And when those plastics get recycled, those toxins don't go away. And then sometimes they can amplify, be amplified. Um, so there's a lot of bad stuff in plastics and recycling the plastic and then using it again, especially in a food scenario for food packaging is not a great idea. Um, a couple of years ago, the Canadian government actually declared that recycled plastics were not suitable for food grade packaging um, because of the, the harmful toxins that could be in it. Um, going back to your recycling bin at your apartment complex, if you think about what goes into it, you can put a milk jug in there, you can put a yogurt tub in there, um, but maybe your sink is clogged someday and you put a Drano tub in, or container in there, or you change your oil on your car and you put a motor oil container in there. All of those plastics that contain different things are getting mixed together. So your milk jug might be sitting next to something that has motor oil in it. Um, you don't really want motor oil touching any any of your food containing, um, yeah, food containers. So those are just uh, some of the simplified ways that uh, plastics recycling are, yeah, that that makes it a bit toxic, and this is why. Greenpeace is really trying to advocate for reducing the amount of plastic that we're using. Recycling is never going to save the save the planet from plastics. Recycling is never going to solve the plastic pollution crisis. And that's why we need to reduce the amount of plastic in the first place. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is like, is recycling even worth, is, is the juice even worth the squeeze? I'm sure maybe in some things possibly, but I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, there might be benefit in even like reducing the scope of what people deem as recyclables. Um, oh, it's 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 so disheartening when when you, when you hear this kind of news because like I'm I'm someone who loves like athleisure. Like I I work out a lot, I exercise a lot. It's really hot in Texas now. I'm in Austin, and I just want to be in something that's like light and breezy and. Athleisure kind of fits the bill, but hearing about all these microplastics that are just washing out of my clothes, like it makes me kind of feel icky that I'm wearing stuff like this. And a headline that grabbed a lot of people's attention a few years ago was the advent that we we are consuming a, a credit card's worth of plastic every week. That is insane to me. Um, how? What, what are the means of kind of ingestion of that? Is that just coming through the water supply? Is it in the food? Is it leaching from these single-use plastics on store shelves? Yeah, it's all of the above. Um, there are more and more studies being done every day about plastics being found in our bodies and how they're getting there. Um, there are some groups that have tested bottled water and also bottled carbonated beverages like sodas and juices. Um, and they have found in basically all of the samples that there are microplastics in the soda, in the juice, in the water. Um, so it is leaching from the plastic bottle into the beverages. Um, and then, you know, if you're eating fish, oftentimes fish are ingesting microplastics out in the ocean or in the water. Um, so then that can as a result, wind up in us. Um, we're also breathing in plastics. Um, you know, you're wearing your athleisure around your house and little microfibers are shedding off of it all the time. And then you vacuum or dust and all of those microfibers get mixed up into the air and then you're, you're breathing it in. Um, there have been recent reports that have found 
plastics in our lungs, in our blood, in our feces, in breast milk. Um, plastics are, are everywhere and now they're inside of us. And there are people studying the effects of these plastics on us um, because we don't really know how it is impacting us. But we know that plastics contain all of these toxic chemicals and additives. So it can't be good for us. <laughs> yeah. One thing that comes to mind is, I believe her name is Dr. Shanna Swan. She's been studying the effects of phthalates on us and phthalates and correct me if I'm wrong, if, if, if you are aware, uh, those are basically coming from petrochemical products, plastics, fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera. And she's kind of sounding the, the alarms that, you know, sexual, um, hormones are declining, um, male, male taints are shrinking, which is supposed to kind of bring the sexes closer together biologically, which might have implications on fertility and all of these really, really profound problems. This seems like it's a very, very big, big problem. Um, I wrote down a little note as you were just speaking on that last point, uh, existential risk. Like how like it is, do you feel like this is like the track that we're on, that this could be something that is as profound that this might affect us as like a, like a species. I don't want to be too dramatic, but like, this is kind of the, the vibe that I'm getting from hearing all this news. I think the issue of plastics combined with everything else that we're facing right now with the climate crisis and um, looming water crises, especially in Western states and different parts of the world. Um, I think all of this is, is a pretty scary like combination of issues that we're facing. Um, I am still hopeful that we can turn things around with the plastic uh, pollution crisis though. Um, there are, are a number of things in the works that, uh, can set us on the right track. So. And I definitely want to get to those because I don't want this to all be doom and gloom. I want there to be a positive spin, what people can do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but let's maybe sit in the doom and gloom a little bit longer because I want to make sure that we totally capture this, this problem. On that topic of health implications, are you aware of anything that the government or uh, publicly funded organizations are doing to better understand this? Or are they really just so well-funded by oil and gas that they're trying to turn a blind eye to the problem? There are a number of groups looking into this all the time. And, you know, the EPA is also looking into this. Um, there are some chemicals called forever chemicals. They're, they're PFAS and PFOAs. Um, those are also a type of plastic and the EPA has really been cracking down on those um, because those are ending up in our water supplies in really terrifying um, amounts. And those are more common, commonly known as like the coating on your rain jacket that uh, repels water or the coating on your Teflon pan um, that makes it nonstick. Um, so there are some government agencies that are kind of doing more research into that and also trying to regulate it. So we just need, we need more of that. And knowing how bad plastics are, what are some examples of actions that we've taken against plastics and kind of what are the knock-on effects that that has provided? I think like the first thing that comes to mind, for example, is replacing the plastic grocery bags with paper. At least here in, in Austin, you can't really find a plastic grocery bag. Thank, thank goodness. Um, are there other big movements, regulations, laws that have been put in place that you can think of that come to mind when you hear action taken against plastics? 
So there are many cities around the country and around the world who are banning plastic bags and banning straws. And those are great first steps. And those are kind of the low hanging fruit. Um, there are some cities who are also banning single use plastics and to go containers from restaurants and steps like that are helpful. Um, and we, we need more of those bans to happen, but we really do need the change to come from the big corporations, the fast moving consumer good corporations and, um, change from the government. And we need more, more laws to prevent this plastic from even existing. And just because you, um, mentioned that you can't get things in a plastic grocery bag, but you can get them in a paper grocery bag. One thing that we're also really trying to advocate for is um, not switching from one single use disposable product to another, because that will just put um, strain on a different part of the environment. You know, if tomorrow we got rid of all plastic single use products and switched it for paper, obviously that's going to be really difficult on our forests. Um, so that's why we're really pushing for reuse and refill rather than switching from one disposable thing to another. In your eyes, what is the biggest lever that can be pulled to help address this problem? Is it something, I, I mean, we've, we've been talking a lot about corporations, but in terms of getting that change in place, getting the word out, what, what do you think is the most impactful thing that we can do? Is it marketing? Is it education? If so, what, what does that look like in your mind? So the thing that I think is going to be the most impactful right now and the thing that I'm most excited about is... Um, something called the Global Plastics Treaty. So right now the UN is negotiating this global treaty that hopefully will ban certain types of plastics. Um, just about a week and a half ago, they finished the second round of negotiated uh, negotiations for this Global Plastics Treaty. It's going to take about another year and a half before they finalize it, um, but it has the potential to be huge. Um, and it would force all these global corporations to change. It would force individual countries to limit the amount of plastic they're producing and using. Um, and hopefully it will be legally binding. So this is kind of like a Paris climate agreement um, that some folks might be familiar with. Um, but where Paris falls short is that it's not legally binding. It's relying on individual countries to kind of set their own metrics for how they're going to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And that's that's where the Global Plastics Treaty could head. And that's what the US government is advocating for right now. They want this treaty to, um, to they want it to be, they call it national action plans. They want each country to be able to create their own plan for how they're going to deal with the plastic waste crisis. And we are really pushing them to change that and to make it be a legally binding treaty um, because we've seen Paris fall short because it's not legally binding. Um, we're also really pushing for a cap on plastic production and a phase out of the most egregious single use plastics like the bottles and cups and forks and things like that. Um, the U.S. government is currently not calling for a cap on plastic production, and we are really trying to push them to change their stance on that um, because we think that this treaty will be a failure if it does not cap plastic production. Why is their stance so hard-nosed? Why are they sticking up for plastics so heavily? I would attribute it to uh, the fossil fuel industry because it has such a stronghold in this country and on our politicians. Um and also the U.S. is a really big 
uh, producer of plastics and our petrochemical companies also want to continue making plastics. So you had mentioned just a few moments ago that you are very optimistic about the future, about solving this problem. What, what gives you the most optimism in terms of what is being implemented today? Uh, we began this conversation by talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Uh, there is a, a person named Boyan Slot, Boyan Slant, Slot, who is who is working to remove plastic from our waterways and oceans. That might be a, a glimmer of hope. Uh, what what comes to mind when you think about the future, and what gives you hope and optimism, and what keeps driving you forward? Yeah. I'm I'm very excited about this Global Plastics Treaty, and if we can get it to the point where it's a super strong, ambitious, legally binding treaty, it's going to be an amazing leverage point for uh, forcing these companies to change their ways and um, forcing governments to crack down on plastic polluters. Um, when it comes to Boyan Slat and the Ocean Cleanup Project, um, I like to start with this metaphor. Um, if your bathtub was overflowing, you wouldn't grab a mop and start to clean up all of the water that had spilled all over your floor. You would first turn off the tap so that it wasn't continuing to overflow. And that's the metaphor that we use, like to use with plastic pollution. Um, right now, we are just flooding our environment and flooding our communities and our oceans with plastic. So to start cleaning it up, um, it seems a bit like a fool's errand. Um, I think it's great that there are people trying to work on this issue from all points. Um, you know, it's going to take all of us to stop the plastic production and to, to clean up this mess. Um, but the things that really do give me hope are the communities and businesses that are switching to more sustainable practices um, and really focusing on refill and reuse. Um, Next year, Paris is going to hold the Olympics, and the city of Paris has said that it will be a single-use plastic-free event. They're going to have reusable everything, um, which is amazing, because if you think about even going to one sporting match in, in your town, you know that people are getting beers and sodas and plastic cups that are going to go immediately in the trash can. So things like that are giving me hope. Um, I live in Durham, North Carolina, and we have an organization here called Don't Waste Durham, and they have implemented reusable uh, to-go containers that uh, 30 restaurants around the city now have in, in rotation, and you can order something to go in these reusable containers, eat your food, clean it out, and give it back to the restaurant or in these like deposit boxes all around the city. Um, they've also partnered with schools who were using styrofoam trays for school lunches and they, um, bought a bunch of metal trays and are now, uh, using those in a bunch of the schools in Durham instead. And they have plans to create kind of giant, um, a sanitization plants so that more businesses and more schools can, um, reuse their products rather than, uh, resorting to these single-use products. So things like that give me hope. And I do feel like it's the direction that we are headed. Um, and I know I've given examples of like the milkman and returning your um, Coca-Cola bottle. And that might sound like a little clunky and old timey, but, you know, we get packages from Amazon in the mail all the time. Um, there's no reason why Amazon can't send us those packages in reusable containers. And then 
when they drop off a package, they also take back some of our containers. You know, this can go both ways. It doesn't have to be like an, a huge burden on consumers. It it can it can be a simple thing. Um, we just need these corporations to be a little bit more innovative and figure out what it looks like. Absolutely, yeah. I'm I'm a interesting mix of a technologist and an optimist. So I'm I'm always hoping that new technologies will have the ability to solve genuine problems. As I'm getting older, I'm starting to think that maybe they create a lot of issues as well, but I'm, I'm still very hopeful that we're headed in the right direction and we're just kind of course correcting as, as we go. That's the optimistic view. Um, as we we're just talking about reusable takeout containers, that, that made me think. For the first time ever, I believe in 2021, um, I was at a company offsite meeting thing and they had lunch ordered in. The containers were, it, it seemed like it was a plastic, but it had right on it, it, it said that it was um, it was compostable. Are those, is that kind of greenwashing? Is that accurate or is that, you're shaking your head no, so. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, as I alluded to, this plastics issue is so complex and there are so many different levels to it. And this is a great question. Um, unfortunately, most of that is greenwashing. Um, there are a couple different types of those compostable, uh, products. Some of them are like, they look like compressed, uh, cardboard or paperboard. Um, those ones are often lined with PFAS, that, uh, toxic chemical that I mentioned earlier. So you don't want to put that in your, in your compost bin or, you know, because then it's going to contaminate everything else in your compost bin. Um, also a lot of places have those like green, they call them greenware. They're like plastic cups. They look like plastic cups, but they say that they're biodegradable or compostable on them. Um, a lot of times that isn't quite accurate. Um, they are commercially compostable, which means that, excuse me, um, they could be composted in giant industrial compost bins they get to really, really high temperatures, but they're not going to compost in your backyard um, composting bin. There is uh, a local composter here who actually has had to say that she can't take any more of the greenware type cups because they're just clogging up her entire composting operation. Um, also, a great thing about compost is that it's breaking, it's organic matter that breaks down and then it can be used to bring nutrients back into soil and things like that. Those greenware cups don't put any nutrients back into the compost. So it's just kind of like wasted space and it takes a really long time for it to degrade. Um, and they're also not marine degradable. So if those items wind up in the ocean, it's not better for any of the animals that live there because they're not going to just magically disintegrate in the ocean. I just thought of an exercise that I, I I did back in I think like the seventh grade when I was just just a kid. We were maybe it was even earlier. <laughs> we, were, we were learning about food webs, so maybe it was earlier than the seventh grade. But an exercise was we started out with like very very small critters, let's say, and they ingested a small amount of fertilizer. Then those were collected by larger predators, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of it, it ended up in some congregated space. And it was like, oh, wow, like, look how much fertilizer actually ends up in this final animal. It's like, we're doing the same. It's like this, this, this little childhood experiment or thought exercise can be applied to microplastics. And it's the longer it goes on, the more I'm concerned that like my body is just like filling up with plastics. And that just like, again, gives me a very eerie kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, 
absolutely. So we've, we've talked about a lot of potential solutions about creating a more upcycle focused economy, et cetera, et cetera. So that exercise, uh, you have all the power in the world. You have uh, as much free range as a government would have. How do you enact the most impactful change in your first few days of office, Lisa? And uh, what what would you do and, and why? Again, we've talked about a few things. Perhaps it's just re- regurgitating those. But if you had free range, would you do things differently? Great question. I would probably just get rid of the fossil fuel industry altogether. <laughs> just ax them, yeah. gone. <laughs> um but if I, if I couldn't do that, then yeah, I would, I would start with a bunch of the things that I talked about. Um, we would just ban single-use products immediately. Um, we would force corporations to switch to systems of refill and reuse. We would build um, sanitization plants across the U.S. You know, everywhere, every municipality that has a dump or a landfill and a recycling center also needs to have a sanitization center. That just needs to happen. Um And we really, yeah, we just need to get rid of our single use mindset and our throwaway culture. And, um, I think that would, that would solve a lot of our issues when it comes to plastics. And so what are some of the downstream consequences of, of these actions? I I mean, clearly, as you just mentioned, we need better infrastructure. We need some, some sanitization sites that can actually upcycle all of these potential containers, bottles, products, et cetera. Um, so what, what second order effects would we see, like, what would we expect higher taxes? Would we expect higher grocery bills, et cetera? Um, and then, I mean, it sounds like the juice is worth the squeeze, like paying a little extra to avoid all this plastic is well worth it. But if you could talk about some of those downstream consequences of these actions. Sure. In an ideal world, um, none of this hits the individual person, the consumers, and we don't have higher grocery bills. Um, I think that, you know, Coca-Cola is a multi-billion dollar corporation. I think that it is time for them to build sanitization plants so that they can um, wash their own bottles. They used to have those plants in the U.S. They don't anymore. So I think a lot of this comes comes down to these companies, and that's why we're not seeing quick enough movement because they don't want to spend the extra money. Um, but I think that they, they owe it to us. <laughs> I would tend to agree. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's, let's talk about some action now. So again, we've talked a lot about government intervention. What is the best, what is the longest lever that an individual person can pull to make a difference? Is it upcycling more things? Is that just kind of peanuts? Is it better to just try to lend your voice to the movement of government? What are a few things that come to mind in terms of what the average person can do to really move the needle? Yeah. Um, I think if you are able to reduce the amount of plastic that you're using in your everyday life, that is great. But also these corporations are not making it easy on us. You go to the grocery store and it's almost impossible to buy a lot of the foods that you want and need not packaged in plastic. So that's why we really need to use our voices. Um, Reach out to your local representatives and ask them what they're doing on a local level to um, reduce the amount of plastic in our communities. Um, We're also, Greenpeace is really trying to push the Biden administration right now to be more ambitious on this global plastics treaty and to um, encourage them to put a cap on plastic production. Um, 
So I think those are the two big things. If people want to go even the next step, um, call Coca-Cola, tell them that you're mad that they are producing 125 billion plastic bottles every year. Tell them that that is unacceptable and they need to switch to systems of refill and reuse. Um, don't stop there. Call PepsiCo, call Nestle, call Unilever. Um, they need to hear from us, um, our politicians and these companies, because the real impactful change has to come from them for better or for worse. And I think spread the word. I had no idea that the stats were as bad as they are. Like 5% of plastic being recycled, 9% all time. That is just, and I think I got those numbers right. I don't want to make sure I don't want those to be too generous by any means. Um, that to me is shocking. Like it, I, I can't believe it. And the, the athleisure stuff really hurts me personally, but I, I'm sure that I can figure out a way to get, to get over it. Um, and if someone is feeling particularly emboldened on this issue and they, and they want to even go further than that, what are some of the best ways that they can help? Get involved with Greenpeace. We have volunteers. Um, you can create a campaign in your city to ban single-use plastics. There are different cities across the country that are doing this. I think Berkeley did it pretty recently. Um, yeah, see if you can start a local campaign. The more the more people we have coming together to to do these local fights will help influence our politicians to do like a bigger, more federal fight. Um, so I think that's that's what I would encourage folks to do. Yeah, and I, I think as we only progress further and further and more things move away from oil and gas to renewables, recycled uh, <laughs> products and goods, the oil and gas industry is going to be looking to, again, pivot. As you said, they're kind of on their dying breath, hopefully. Um, no offense to anyone who's in oil and gas, but it, it seems like it's beyond just like a problem of economies and, and, and goods and services. Like I'm, I'm pretty health conscious. And just to, again, just think about the amount of plastic that's building up in my own body. It's, it's eerie. It's, it's not good. Um, so there are things that people can do. There are calls to action that people can, can follow. Uh, Lisa Ramsden, ladies and gentlemen, Lisa, if anyone wants to follow you and their work, where can they go? What are some good resources for them to check up on and follow through with? Sure. Um, you can go to www.greenpeace.org. You can follow us on Instagram, Greenpeace USA or Greenpeace International. Um, we're on Twitter. We're on all the social media. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, yeah. Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Mm-hmm.